Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. This is the first podcast of the year, and I have the real pleasure to have a great guest who's the author of Party in the Street, the Anti-War Movement, and the Democratic Party after 9-11. Publisher of the book is Cambridge University Press. His co-author is Fabio Rojas, and we have the pleasure to have Michael Heaney on today. I hope that you would really enjoy this interview that I did with Michael. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we have the real pleasure, I've had the pleasure to read, and I have the pleasure now to talk to the author of Party in the Street, the Anti-War Movement, and the Democratic Party after 9-11. Uh, the author is Michael Heaney, his co-author is Fabio Rojas. I have the pleasure to have Michael on the line today. So, Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today, Heath. Yeah, it's been great to read the book. This, um, like many of the books that are on the podcast, is, is a book that um, fits very much with what I'm interested in. I, I hope others are as well. I suspect they will be. Before we get to the book, let's just hear a little bit more about who you are and also about your co-author who wasn't able to be with us today. So tell us about yourself. My name is Michael Heaney. I'm Assistant Professor of Organizational Studies and Political Science at the University of Michigan. And my co-author is Fabio Rojas, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, Fabio and I actually went to graduate school together at the University of Chicago. He studied sociology, and I studied political science and public policy. But uh, we became friends, and when the anti-war movement got started, we saw an opportunity for a joint project, which we've been working on now for 10 years and we're finally bringing to completion. Do you think that there's anything that, that your sort of interdisciplinary background brings to this subject matter, that, that if you had studied this either alone or you'd studied this um, uh, with another political scientist, you might not have gotten to? Maybe you can set up that side that's, of the work for That's us. a great question because interdisciplinarity is really at the core of this book. Um, people who study political parties largely come from political science, and people who study social movements largely come from sociology. And there is some crossover. Um, you know, there are people like Doug McAdam that cross over and study both parties and movements and so on. Um, but that's really a kind of a key, unique part of this book is the way that we really emphasize bringing in political science theory, sociological theory, and having the two confront one another. Um, if I had done this with another political scientist, we would not see, see the same kind of tensions in the book that we do because of the interdisciplinary collaboration. Yeah, and the result is something I think really interesting and, and, and now open um, to, to a number of different audiences that, that I do hope read the, read the book. So let's talk about the, what, what goes on in the book, um, and maybe we can set this up a bit. So, so what is happening between 2001 and 2006, just to start, that creates the environment for anti-war activists to form a social movement. Okay. Well, we all remember all too well uh, the events of 9-11, uh, 
and the terrorist attacks uh, in New York City. And of course, there was a need by the Bush administration to respond to these attacks. And a lot of people not so happy with the way that the Bush administration did this. And when the attacks were, um, when the attacks first happened, and the government's response was mainly limited to Afghanistan, uh, the war had fairly broad support. However, once the um, the war broadened to Iraq, there was a much greater level of opposition which emerged. And being a Democrat and being against the war came to be associated with one another. So people that opposed the Bush administration also came to be anti-war. And there was this sort of um, synergy between democratic activism and anti-war activism. How soon after after the, the, the wars occurred do we see the work of anti-war activists who who are who who didn't go away let's say after the 1960s but but how soon after these wars uh two wars began do we actually see what could be characterized as a social movement rather than simply the activity of of anti-war activists that would happen really at any well that's a good question heath uh, i think that what you saw was immediate mobilization against the war in Afghanistan by at least some elements of already mobilized social movements. And one of the key groups that was involved in this was an organization called the International Action Center, which was affiliated with what many people were calling the anti-globalization movement, sometimes is referred to as the global justice movement. Um, so there was this, what you would call, what Sidney Tarot and Jennifer Haddon have called uh, spill out, where Act, social movement activity and mobilization that was occurring in the anti-globalization global justice movement spilled out into the anti-war movement. So you started to see sort of an immediate mobilization along those lines that I think that we could reasonably characterize as a social movement. Um, that said, it really wasn't until late 2002, early 2003, that you started to see what you might call a mass movement, where there was this definite sense that the Bush administration was going to invade Iraq and that there was going to be a mass response to this. And of course, on February 15, 2003, there were demonstrations all over the world. Millions of people gathered in hundreds of cities and protested the U.S. invasion plan for Iraq. You you write about this, and then then you suggest that there's this sort of odd occurrence, and then perhaps it's, it's not surprising, but it is odd that that just at the height of their efforts, um, as anti-war activists help elect a new democratic-controlled Congress, they begin to fade away in some ways. Yeah. Sort of descriptively speaking, what happened? And then we'll get on to your analysis of this, but sort of descriptively, what happened? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and um, you know. We were really puzzled by that as well, which is, I guess, one of the other interesting aspects of this book is that we're not studying the anti-war movement looking back at it. We're studying it as it's happening. So we were on the streets. We were doing surveys. We were doing interviews. Uh, we were following the movement, and we saw the movement rising in 2004, 2005, 2006, which, of course, came to the crescendo of the 2006 congressional elections when the Democrats um, claimed control of uh, the House of Representatives again. And 
we would have expected that now there would be substantial anti-war-oriented democratic policymaking and that the anti-war movement would become a major force and become a major part of politics. But what we actually saw was that once the Democrats um, had the, their increased strength after the 2006 congressional elections, you start to see a decrease in the anti-war movement. And the anti-war movement starts to kind of slowly fade away. So immediately after the elections in January 2007, you see some substantial mobilization. But you don't really see massive mobilizations after that. So it's almost as if the anti-war movement gives up, or at least gives up is maybe not the right word, but the anti-war movement starts to decline at exactly the time when it was most poised to really hammer its point home. And, and most effective, yet, yet the wars, wars continue. Let, well, not let's only talk about how... War, not only does the war continue, but in many ways the war intensifies. Mm-hmm. So the anti-war movement is declining at the same time that President Bush is doing a surge in Iraq. So you would think that there would be reason to sort of step up the anti-war movement. Um, Certainly during a parallel time during the Vietnam War, you saw that the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War was increasing with with Nixon's escalations. Um, You didn't see that against the the anti-war movement against the war in Iraq. So so let's talk about how you analyze uh, a number of pieces of this. What are some of the sources of data that you look to to examine the situation? Well, the, the most important source of data in, bo- in the book is um, surveys that we did on the street of anti-war activists co- uh, collected at anti-war demonstrations. And we did surveys. Um, we did not do surveys in 2006, but we did surveys in 2004, 2005, 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2010. And what we did was we went to a national sampling of anti-war events. You know, we went to events in Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Fayetteville, North Carolina, Indianapolis, Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, Denver, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. So we went to all of these different cities and conducted surveys with uh, people who were on the streets demonstrating. And we did this on days that were nationally coordinated days of action. So, for example, you might have something like March 19th. There's the fifth anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. There are going to be protests around the country. And we may have conducted surveys in New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and San Francisco. So that's the most important source of data. Um, We also have interviews that we do with um, leaders of the anti-war movement. Um, We also have surveys that we do at um, more targeted, more narrow events or conferences that are gatherings of sort of leaders of the anti-war movement. Uh, We also did um, a survey of delegates to the Democratic National Convention to get a sense of the Democratic Party side of this. Um, and of course, we brought in other kinds of data. So we looked at uh, we looked at archival records on the legislative process. Um, we looked at um, online records about organizations. Um, we looked at uh, electoral, you know, election data, public um, exit polls. 
So we brought together lots of different sources of data to do our analysis. And what are some of the things that you found? Maybe some of the things that, that either surprised you or um, you know, ran counter to what your expectations were. Well, the most surprising thing that we found was the large decline of the, um, the anti-war movement starting, with the, starting in 2007. And also we found that this decline was driven largely by um, people who had identified as Democrats. So that being a self-identified Democrat was a predictor that a person would withdraw from the anti-war movement or reduce their involvement in the anti-war movement. And this was certainly not something that we had expected because we had seen initially the um, democratic identification. We had been observing it over the past several years as being a real fuel for the anti-war movement. But what started to happen in 2007 is that instead of having Democratic Party identification um, fueling the anti-war movement, it actually became a reason for people to withdraw from the anti-war movement. So as a result, the movement was left with uh, smaller groups of people that identified more with third parties or that didn't identify with any particular party. And um, we find this first and foremost in the street demonstrations but we also find that the same pattern is replicated when you look at the behavior of organizations, coalitions. Um, it's the, replicated in the behavior of legislators. So that is the real finding, is this sort of democratic identification being a driver of withdrawal from the anti-war movement. Now, later in the book, you, you shift your attention to the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. Um, generally speaking, do these... Uh, two movements mimic the trajectory of the anti-war movement, or, or do they show something else? Well, that's a good question, and I think they both in some ways mimic it and in some ways show something else. So what we wanted to do was, or at least one of the questions that people always asked us whenever we would tell people we're working on the project is, they would say, um, oh, so you're working on the anti-war movement. Well, what about the Occupy movement? Or what about the Tea Party movement? And so we found that audiences for the book were really hungering for some sense of comparison to other movements. And so we followed up, we have a, a semi-final chapter, chapter seven in the book, which is a comparative analysis of the anti-war movement and the Occupy movement and the Tea Party movement. And we find that there are some real similarities um, in what we observe in all three of these movements. The most important thing that's similar is that the way that, that people think about and identify with political parties plays an enormously important role in the way that they think about and identify with movements, which is something that which is an, which is an idea that is not really strongly emphasized in the social movements literature or more in the political parties literature per se. And so we see in all three movements this strong connection uh, between between partisan identification and the way that they think about movements. Now, the way that this plays out differs between the different movements. So in the Tea Party movement, what we see is that identification between Tea Party participants and the Republican Party, is there's a very strong connection there. So as a result, the Tea Party has very much evolved inside of the Republican Party. Um, in the Occupy movement, there's actually a strong anti-partisanship so that the, the movement really thinks a lot about Democratic Party identification as a negative thing 
and they push away elements um, that have been uh, connected with the Democratic Party. So the Occupy movement sort of evolves away from the, from, uh, the Democratic Party. And then the anti-war movement is sort of an intermediate case where it initially the anti-war movement evolves inside the Democratic Party and then it evolves away from the Democratic Party. So it's, I, it's the critical um, factor in all three cases is this um, movement party identification linkage and then the way that that manifests is different in the three movements. Now, talk just a little bit, and sort of reaching the end here, but a bit about polarization. Polarization is the other, you know, one of the big things happening uh, concurrently with, with the time period you're studying. So does polarization help to explain what you found, or is it, or is it something different? Well, that's, that's also a really important aspect of the story. And polarization is a critical part of the context for what we observe. So, and basically, just to summarize briefly, polarization is the idea that people who identify as Democrats all tend to have a certain, not only do they have that partisan identification, but they have a certain set of common beliefs about issues. Um, and likewise, people who identify as Republicans have a common set of beliefs about issues. And as a result, you rarely have Republicans that agree with issues that Democrats champion, and you rarely have Democrats that agree with issues that Republicans champion. So what happens is this creates a kind of homogeneity between party between a party and a movement. And this is such an important context for the book because what polarization does is it makes it very difficult for a social movement to work on an issue once its party has moved away from that issue, or at least it creates really substantial challenges. So once the Democrats, once the Democratic Party really decides that opposing the Iraq war is no longer one of its party priorities, and this definitely happens especially clearly with the election of uh, Barack Obama as president, once that happens, it becomes very difficult for the anti-war movement to mobilize um, because it's counter to the party's priorities and so many of the movement supporters are Democrats. And so what we could sort of imagine is in an alternative universe where, um, where there's sort of parties and issues are not so strongly connected, it might be easier for the party to keep or the movement to keep on working on issues even once the party's moved on because people have a connection to the movement, which is stronger than their connection to the party. But in a sense, the problem that these movements have strategically is that the people that support the movements actually identify much more strongly and in a much longer term sense with the parties that they're a part of. And as long as the parties are polarized, um, it's very difficult to get the movements to do anything that would go against the agendas of the parties. Such interesting findings. Uh, you know, over the last year, we've we've heard from so many people talking about party polarization. Hans Noel came on, talked at one point about it with his really interesting book. And I think yours most recent really does um, fill out some of the, the important implications of polarization for, for issues that we don't normally connect to them. What's, uh, what's next for you? This book is out. Uh, what are you working on next? Is it, um, is it, um, well, the next project is a project with one of my PhD students, Jesse Crossan, and he and I are looking at 
coalitions of interest groups in lobbying politics in uh, Washington, D.C., and we're trying to understand the composition of those coalitions, the organization of those coalitions, um, and how that affects the way that interest groups work together or don't work together. Um, and, of course, we're going to continue this theme of parties and polarizations to polarization to see how the partisan context of Washington policymaking affects the way that um, the way that interests interests mobilize. So in a sense, the the Party in the Street book is a, a book about the mobilization of grassroots politics. Um, this next book will really be about the mobilization of elite politics, but in a lot of ways it'll carry some of the same themes that we looked at in Party in the Street. Both of the projects sound really interesting to me. Uh, Michael's book uh, that he wrote with Fabio Rojas, Party in the Street, The Anti-War Movement and the Democratic Party After 9-11, published this year by Cambridge University Press, is available widely. I hope that people go out and take a look. Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Heath.